This is the podcast for the Kind Wealth Club. We're a community of members united by the desire to spend, give, and invest our wealth in ways that positively impact people and our planet. Listen in as we wrestle with the complex social and environmental challenges of our time and explore creative ways of using our wealth to solve them. Hey, as much as I like that you're listening to this podcast, I would love for you to join the conversations live. Visit us at www.kindwealth.club to learn more. And so Sonia's work around gender equality, racial equality, diversity, um, inclusion, and in particular in the financial services space, I think is, is really interesting. It's always caught my attention. Sonia was very early and brave thought leader in this space. And, and I really admired her work. Sonia, I think we were, was it now a year ago since the conference? Oh, the Tiburon conference? Yeah. That was in October of 2019. So a little bit more than a year now. Yeah. And this was a, like an invite only conference. As I understand it, I had, I've never been to it before, but the comments that were being made on stage were particularly troubling and misogynistic. And there was like a code of silence that you took if you attended this conference that you didn't share what was talked about at the conference. Yeah. And that's the code of silence is really for business purposes because people do share insight about their business that they might not share publicly. It's not a code. The code of silence is not intended to cover up bad behavior. Right. Yes, I broke yeah. the code of silence, as did a few other people. But it did, right? But it did have that like very unintentional consequence that people who had heard these comments were offended by them and found them deeply problematic. Also, felt that they couldn't necessarily talk about that. Is that possibly? I don't want to speculate what, what other people felt, but I, I hope that other people found them problematic. I think there was at least a few other advisors who I had seen on Twitter and who had, or people who had been at that conference who had shared. Oh yeah. Who, who yeah. felt Alex like. Alex and Rachel Robichaudi also spoke out about it. Yeah. And they like, and it did feel to me like they were a little, oh, I'm doing something wrong here by sharing this, but I can't just sit by and, and watch it. So as you say, it wasn't intentional trying to muffle people from sharing what they were offended. They didn't think they expected it was going to offend people, but it did. And anyway, so I always thought that was like really brave of you and the folks who who did speak up against it. And you were doing like, maybe just give a little bit of introduction to yourself, but you had already been like, that was the first time I really recognized the work that you were doing in that space. I think if I, my memory serves me correctly, I had always thought about the work that you'd done in response, like ESG and responsible investing, but you had already been doing some work in that space, had you? A little bit. I've been, and and to speak to the comments, they were just, I don't want to re-say them, but they were pretty derogatory towards women. We could just say that. And so I have been doing this work for a long time, my whole life, because I'm a woman <laughs> and I work in financial services. And so I've seen and personally experienced gender discrimination and harassment in financial services for most of my career. Fortunately, I've um, done really well and haven't experienced anything incredibly bad, but I know a lot of other women who have. And so I've spoken about it a little bit at 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 that point. I had spoken about it a bit. I had spoken about also race in financial services and how we need to do better talking about race and building more inclusive businesses and being intentional about having financial services reflect the population of the United States in terms of race and gender. And I had been working before that particular incident at the conference was in October of 2019. And for about the six months prior to that, I had been working on a series of articles detailing real stories of women from real women in financial services, stories about harassment, assault, and discrimination in financial services. And and so I had them all queued up and ready to go, but for a number of reasons, I had not published them, partly because I couldn't find a media partner 
financial services media companies did not want to publish these stories, and I wanted to give them a broader audience than just my website and my presence, and was unsuccessful in finding a way to do that. So I held on to them. And also I held on to them because I was honestly very nervous about publishing them. I thought it could be very detrimental to my career. And after the thing, after the thing with Ken Fisher happened, I was getting a ton of media inquiries specific to what happened at that conference. And I didn't really want to talk about that conference. I wanted to talk about what the broader the broader implications in financial services, not just what one person said, but what thousands of women are experiencing every day at the office and at conferences and how we are, how and why we're underrepresented so distinctly in financial services. Having all these inquiries come in and having all all this content ready to go, maybe a week or two after After that, I decided, okay, it's time I'm going to publish these stories. And so that's when I started publishing what's now called the Do Better series, what it ended up being a 10-article series about harassment, discrimination, and assault in financial services. And it was incredibly well-read and well-received, and I'm so grateful for its success, for getting out the stories of other women, and my own stories are in there. And for starting a broader conversation, which I think it has. What, so remind me, what, when did you start writing that series? What year was that? Oh, I started in March of 2019. Okay. And I started because I just wanted to share, I wanted to write one article about why women don't share their stories about harassment and assault publicly. Because we share them when another woman, when I meet another woman in finance or when we when we first meet or when we're talking at a conference, we often share stories about harassment. Don't get into an elevator with that guy or don't work at this company. They've been really awful to women broadly, those kind of things. But we don't usually share these publicly. And so I wanted to write an article about why do we keep these secret? We keep them secret because it's dangerous for us to talk about them, dangerous to our career, sometimes dangerous to our physical safety. But I wanted that article to not be about me. I wanted it to be more broad, so I put out a call on social media asking if any other women would like me to share their stories anonymously on their behalf. And I didn't have a very big social media platform at the time, but I still got 40 stories in under 24 hours. And that's when I realized, oh, this is about, this is going to be bigger than just one article. And it took months for me to put it together, probably about six months altogether. That's amazing that in that short a time frame, you got so many responses. And I think, sadly, really indicative of what is going on in financial services and has been for a really long time. And I, this happens all over the place. But my sense is that I, I'm going to say this knowing that real, recognizing how limited my perspective is here. But I, my sense is that financial services is a particularly bad industry for this type of behavior. I think so. I think there are some other industries that are also pretty bad. Tech and law, mm-hmm. I have heard from people that who read these stories and said, oh, this resonates. It's not finance, but this, the, this series, I see my journey reflected uh, here, too. Yeah. And so what was your sense? Like you said that you, know, you didn't have a lot of receptive media partners to, the, to publishing this. Do you? I know it's hard to speculate, but do you have any sense? Was it just too early for them to... I suspect you'd get a better reception now. Maybe I'm wrong. Possibly. There's a few There's a few things. And I know the media landscape much better now. I okay. didn't really understand it as well then. So there's a few different parts. The first one is some organizations just didn't want to touch it. One, one person wrote back and said, oh, we had an article about sexual harassment last month. So we're all set. <laughs> like, okay, great. All fixed up. Um, glad we covered that. And so some people, some organizations just didn't want to touch it or they didn't think it would be, was newsworthy. And some editors read it and then 
actually had a number of people read it and then just not respond after that. They read an excerpt and didn't respond. And I think there's a description of actual physical assault in the second in the second installment. It is very hard to read. And I think I'm guessing that it's just too much for some mainstream mm. publications. And then lastly, many media organizations rightly want to check their sources. And so they did not want to publish something that was all anonymous without talking to those sources. And I had already promised to my sources, to, to, the, peop- to the women who gave me their stories, that they would remain anonymous. So I couldn't connect them unless they volunteered. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's easy to just interpret it as, well, they don't want, you know, they're not ready to handle that. And, and I'm sure that was part of it. But as you say, maybe there were some other factors that were also um, contributing to the lack of pickup. Yep. Yeah. There's definitely other factors. And actually, once the stories were published, a couple of women volunteered publicly. They said, I'm in here. This is my story. And there are, and media picked up on those and did longer mm. pieces interviewing those women and giving even, lifting up their voices and their stories even more, which I was grateful for. I, I want to be sensitive to the question I'm asking and, and how I'm asking it. So feel free to, you know, Declined to respond to it, but I like I'd love for people who are listening in on this to get a better sense, and particularly men, to get a sense for like the types of things that are happening. That a they, I think there's two categories for me personally that have were eye opening. One was what are those kind of things that to men we don't often recognize as deep, you know, as problematic, and then b the other category, which is shockingly, which is really just shocking and awful, and you and it's hard to believe sometimes that there is somebody who would actually try to pull that and and get away with something like that. And of course, that stuff I don't think anybody I, I don't even in my earliest most least woke days would I have said it doesn't happen at all. But I think what I've been surprised by throughout all of the Me Too and Times Up and the movements we've been seeing is just how prevalent it is. And that is horrific. Also, I guess what I'm asking is, can you give a sense for the types of things you've heard that happen like across the range of, from the seemingly more innocuous, I don't want to call it that, but it seems that way sometimes to the more egregious. Yeah. And there is a range. The series has a a full range from sexual assault to what, can appear to be more, which is definitely more innocuous than sexual assault. Let me not mince words there, but things that appear to be innocuous when they are one-offs, but actually are just exhausting when they have, when they compound and happen over and over. And so some of those more innocuous things, I would say innocuous in quotation marks, but you can't see yeah. me with doing my air quotes. <laughs> some of the more innocuous things are just conflating maybe joking about sales in exchange for sexual favors and, and to categorize that as innocuous is wild, but that mm-hmm. actually was, that happened quite frequently. Innocuous is a relative term here. We'll say. <laughs> yes. Yes. People, a lot of women reported men touching their hair, which mm. is, or maybe gently touching against them in a way that the women knew was not accidental, but was possibly framed as accidental. Mm -hmm. So they're being like gaslit, Uh, right? Yeah. 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 Let's see. I'm looking at some of these here. Some of them, some of them are just, some of the women just had like a bad feeling about, about a coworker because of a number of, jokes or small things and it can be really hard to quantify it's one of those and then i but then there's stuff in between that that it really runs the gamut there's one of the stories in there is a woman who was drugged by at a client dinner by the client and then what maybe one of the most surprising things is how frequently HR 
protects does does not protect their employees. For example, for in this particular example, the story that I'm recalling, the woman told told her supervisor, and the supervisor said, "Well, we can't do anything because it's a really big client." Hmm. Wow. Just yeah. outright, that was the response. Well, they, they didn't even try to hide that. Yes, that was it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was it. No, that was uh, it. So We're not going to report anything because this is a really big client. Yeah. And then the jokes, I will say the jokes, um, they add up and they're not funny. I, I can speak from experience. I have had, if you go to a conference, a lot of what, or even not a conference, but just business networking, a lot of good business networking happens in the bar after dinner, right? When people are a little bit more relaxed and people know each other, but relaxed behavior is not an excuse for harassment or assault or joking about it. And I have had multiple men joke about putting roofies in my drink, the date rape jug, to be clear. And that's not funny. And then Mm -hmm. other men heard it and didn't say anything. Or they came and apologized to me later, which doesn't, which I'm glad they acknowledged that it was bad, but it doesn't do any, it doesn't help at all mm-hmm. in that situation in which I was feeling very unsafe. Yeah. This is for me, one of the, I have had some eye-opening discussions and or examples that really rang, brought home for me the discrepancy or disparity that, or the differences at least in how women may perceive a situation from men that like, I think a lot of men and I certainly didn't probably pay enough attention to throughout my life is that again, like women and anybody who's not in a position of power, whether that's like physical or it could be like employment or whatever that case is, they, they can perceive the situation very differently. So I'll give you examples. Like somebody was sharing a story about how they were, it was a guy and he was sharing a story about how he was uh, walking home at, one evening after work, it was nighttime, and he passed, like, walking in the same direction as a woman who was in front of him, and he was walking faster, and he passed her. And she got very terrified, terrified by that. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I just, like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't realize what was I supposed to do. And so, it's dark. It's nighttime. She's walking alone, and you're much bigger than her, and you've just walked close past her as you rushed by you don't think twice about it because you're 6'2 and a white man and it just doesn't happen as often to you. And so that was really like, and, and then it was a, it was a social media, I think platform. And there's a lot of comments from women who were like, Oh yeah, that buddy, dude, you got to cross the street, make a, get their attention somehow, like whatever the case is, you can't do that. And he genuinely was just like, you know, so surprised to hear all that. And he just doesn't even think about it. And the other story I'll share just quickly because it was also very profound, was men just not often being in a position where they feel physically vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And it was a friend of mine, I was living in South Africa at the time, and he's uh, an American guy, also, uh, we were in Cape Town, and he went to a, one of the bars there one night, it was like a small bar above a restaurant, so there's like a little narrow stairway to get up to this room above the bar, and it's its own separate, like, bar dance club type of thing but it's very small there's only the one entrance through this narrow passage stairway and he was there with a, a few of his buddies also americans and they're not particularly big guys and later in the night a large rugby team came and they were celebrating a victory and the night went on and they're a physically just very big individuals and they were drinking and getting more and more like rowdy and just a little abrasive and and he realized at one point like him and his buddies were ended up pushed against a corner because this team had just taken over the room and and they were getting more and more kind of aggressive just having fun but it seemed to him he remembers recalling at a certain point oh if these guys for whatever reason we bumped into them they didn't like us we looked at them the wrong way and they didn't like us like we would just get crushed in here if they wanted to beat us up like we would have no no way to get out and they're way more of them they're much bigger and so the, nothing ended up happening but for the rest of the night he just didn't feel particularly safe and couldn't mm-hmm. particularly enjoy himself and you know, it's not often that men are in that situation yes yeah and so you know for me again that was a another oh wow like women are not always in that position but it's more often 
probably in, in some position like that. And or if it's not uh, physical, it's a position of power and experience and your bosses are more likely to be white men and can you can lose your job or career opportunities. So it just made me a lot more aware of and, and until you stop and think about it, you can miss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. There's a lot that women are carrying and I'll say especially women of color face this even more in terms of the sort of power differential at work and potential for harassment and discrimination as well. It's the racial discrimination compounds on top of the general, the gender discrimination. They're not, you can't really separate them. Mm-hmm. Time for a quick break from our sponsor. The world of personal finance is full of strange and wonderful rules. And honestly, it makes optimizing your finances nearly impossible unless you're a professional. Is it better to use an RRSP or a TFSA? Are you making the most of your employer pension and benefits? What should you do with company stock or options? How does your business fit into your long-term financial plan? These are just a fraction of the questions Canadians struggle with. The confusion can lead to choices that end up costing thousands of dollars a year. Kind Wealth can help you make the most of your money by offering high-quality financial advice. No sales commissions, no hidden fees, no long-term contracts. Just honest advice at a price you can afford. Visit kindwealth.ca to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of intersectionality happening, right? We can get into people who are kind of non-binary gender, and there's just a lot of ways, of course, in which you are discriminated against and or, yeah. But yes, to your point that men often haven't considered this because it hasn't impacted them directly. And it's human nature to compare what somebody's saying to your lived experience and compare against it to see if, does that sound right? Does that check out? But your lived experience has probably been pretty different than mine. In fact, one of the last time I was out and about before the pandemic shut us all in last March, I was at a an event for women in business. And it was this great event. I left feeling really excited. It was about getting more um, women in media and on TV as, you know, subject matter experts. It's something that Bloomberg hosted. It was really great. And then... I was just feeling great about it. And then I took the train home. It was evening, but not super late, maybe eight or nine. But listen to me, I'm making excuses like I'm not allowed to be out at night. I'm a human, I'm allowed to walk home from the train at nine at night. But this is something else that we we do, women do. You can watch me do it in real time. But I was walking home and a guy followed me in his car and was giving me compliments, but not in a not in a way I was wanting to receive, but while I was on foot at night by myself mm. with somebody in his car. And it's, and I would guess most women know they have this, you have this sort of well-practiced armor of you can't be too rude because you don't want the person who has more, in this case, physical power to be, to harm you. You don't want to be nice because you don't want more of this behavior. And so it's just this like heart racing. Oh, is this the moment that I'm going to get attacked? Who knows? Like here are all of the mental and emotional defenses that I have honed. Starting since I was 12 is the first time I remember being harassed on the street. And I made it home, but I took a different route. I made sure he wasn't following me. I did not turn on to, his, to my street. So I walked an extra, I don't know how many blocks until I made sure he wasn't following me anymore. And fortunately, he just wanted to, I don't know. I don't know. He was not trying to follow me all the way home, but it was really scary. And to take, to leave this gender, this event about women in business and leave and have this experience mm-hmm. right after the contrast was, not missed on me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it just, yeah, as you say, it really just highlights the, how much more there is to go 
with this problem. I mean, it's just, it's endemic to life outside of financial services. It's, it's going to be an issue. It's everywhere. That, yeah, it's everywhere. And as you say, this guy, I don't know this guy, maybe he meant nothing by it, but even if he didn't, it still is part of the problem, which is like men not thinking about the position they may be putting women in and just being ignorant of like how they might be <laughs> in making yeah, women feel. It, yeah. And it's exhausting to carry that vigilance all the time. I can imagine. I think like an, in a situation that I might've felt uncomfortable where, Oh, I'm worried about my f- physical health here. Uh, my in danger is a very small number of times that maybe has ever happened to me in my life that I can't even recall. I'm sure it, it, it has where there was a strange car or something, not a serious worry, maybe ever in my life. And this is the type of thing that happens to women, I think pretty regularly. Yeah. So just before I, I want to turn into the kind of the five steps you've outlined around how you build more diverse and inclusive networks. I also want to give a chance for Jay and Christine and anybody else who wants to join the discussion if they want to share any thoughts before we move in there. But to transition this this topic into these sort of how you build more diverse and inclusive networks, and you talk about it from the frame of, and I suspect, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, you correct me if I'm wrong, but my guess is that it becomes a lot more palatable for the people in positions of power to think about building diverse and inclusive networks to improve their practice than to just say, hey, you have a moral imperative to do this. Yeah, for me, it's both. And I'll take whatever reason somebody's coming to right. the table, right? right. <laughs> for me, really, it's a, you know, there's a the moral and ethical imperative. I feel that very deeply. Not just on gender, but race and across a variety of different identities. And diverse groups of people in business make better business decisions. And companies with diverse leadership are more likely to have higher profits. There's a McKinsey study that I'm new to Clubhouse, but maybe on the podcast part uh, recording, you can add show notes. I'm happy to share it, but there's lots of studies that show, yes, there's a business case for it. And so if somebody's coming to me because they hear about the business case, great. I'll take that too. I am at the point where I am happy to just get to the part of where we are actually increasing representation in financial services to look more like the United States or in your case, Canada, and whatever reason people come to the table for that, I welcome it. Yeah, I think that, as you say, you have to be a realist about the stuff. I agree with you on the moral imperative. You're muted. Did you have another question? Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with you. You have to be practical about the stuff. I agree with you on the moral imperative, but whatever way you can get people to move the needle, I think makes sense. Jason, Christine, Richard, I know you've just joined. Jason and Christine, if you do you have anything before we change gears into the sort of practical steps people can take, do you have any thoughts or anything you wanted to share on what we've been chatting up until now about? Yeah, sure. Hey, Dave. Hi, Sonia. Look, this is a really big topic to unpack, and it's being unpacked all over the place now, racially, gender, sexual orientation, overweight, like everybody's looking, like you said before, at whatever situation there is, you can say lived experience through whatever lens you're looking at, what you've learned, what you've been taught, what are appropriate norms for you. But I think what we're talking about here, there's, there should be an overriding set of appropriate norms for people in general. I think that's what a lot of religions try to do at a very high level not to bring that part of it into the conversation but that's what really we're talking about here people lack i think a lot of common sense in certain situations and that just comes from having a lack of awareness of a situation and a lack of empathy in terms of trying to understand somebody else's viewpoint or how that could make somebody else feel like me as being mixed and I'm six foot, 210, 15 pounds. And I'm very conscious any time of day walking behind single women. I grew up with women, by the way. So it's a bit 
maybe I'm a little bit more into tune with that type of thing. As I'm walking down the sidewalk, I'm making sure I'm looking at the situation. I don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable or threatened that, hey, who's this guy walking in, particularly at night or you're going under a tunnel or something like that. I go out of my way to make it. And sometimes it's a man. Sometimes it's a smaller man. And I'm like, okay, I don't want this guy to feel threatened. There's that aspect to it. And then I think the whole notion of there's a lot of crap that goes on inside of companies or social settings or whatever. Companies do sweep a lot of it under the rug because there's power dynamics and ultimately dollars and cents do the talking so people can get away with a lot of stuff a lot longer than they could if they weren't producers at those types of organizations. And then there's also the ego kind of kicks in. So there's just so much to unpack from a kind of awareness, ego, consciousness, really understanding how the human mind works with fears and biases that the more people can do some real internal work to raise that level of awareness and raise that level of just understanding and empathy with others, I think everybody will be in a much better place. Everybody will calm down, um, not rush to doing stupid things. And I think that's where this stuff really starts. These people that do that kind of stuff, they want to, they need to want to make the change because otherwise they'll keep perpetuating the same cycles over and over again. It's, you can only force people so far, but it's usually unsuccessful. Usually there's a moment or an event or something that happens. Somebody gets fired from a job for doing something. Look at the lady in New York, right? With the, I'm going to call the cops on you. You're harassing me. He was telling her, Hey, why don't you pick up after your dog? And the guy was black and she calls the cops. Thank God she lost her job. That's what should happen. So now maybe she's going to start to think about things, but you have to have these kind of events for people to actually say, and this was consciously she's doing it, right? Not even subconsciously. She's consciously doing this. There's just so much going on, but I'll end it there. I'm done speaking. I think that's what I need to say now. I'll pick, I'd like to pick up on that a little bit. You're right. You know what she said consciously, which is so clearly unacceptable. And it makes me wonder because she did work in financial services, how many less obvious or maybe even less conscious choices did she make with her team, with potential candidates for her team investment decisions that were informed by that same what we we were able to see and hear what what has not been seen and heard but came through in the work and who has been impacted there that's the story that we don't often hear about and that's where i want to where i want to come in and think have people think about what this type of behavior looks like at work just as a follow-on, I, I don't think the incidence of these behaviors is increasing. I think the awareness of the incidence of these behaviors is increasing because everybody's carrying around a camera with them at all times now. It's only in the last 10 years you're carrying around a, a camera and you can just whip it out and film police brutality, this, that, and the other. A lot of the stuff that goes on with the women's stuff, it's it, it's always done to the side. So that stuff doesn't get captured, but people are more open to coming out and telling those stories like this is the ugly side of the human experience is what we're seeing more and more each day but humans have been brutal to not only other kind of animal species to each other and you look through the history of the wars and and everything it's just people are not humans are not nice people there's something inherently wrong with certain segments because they're of the belief that they're right. And it's that belief that people feel they're in the right doing whatever they're doing that causes them to do these types of things and justify them. Unfortunately, there's no real easy solution except more and more awareness. Hopefully that, that kind of changes more and more minds as you create that awareness and people start to look inward and say, you know what, 
I, I got to not do these types of things. I, I do think that, that is particularly what men need to do to take up the mantle on. Listen, I understand there are exceptions and there are cases where women are beat men and are physically and verbally abusive to men, but it you know disproportionately happens in the other direction. And, uh, and so we are the problem. And even if it's not any one individual, any one particular man, all men have a role to play in, in helping other men understand this. And we actually had a, Sonia, if you're, and anyone here is interested, we had a, a gender equality discussion writ large about how men can be better allies for gender equality. And we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago and next Tuesday at noon, we're having another discussion part two, because it just, there were a lot of people who got involved in that discussion and it was just a really interesting chat. But we, what we uncovered in, in that, which I think was really interesting and not that, so I don't say we uncovered it like nobody else has, but what came out in that conversation was the interesting kind of point that these unhealthy views that we have of manhood and what it means to be a man are not only unhealthy for, in a lot of cases, for everyone who isn't a man, <laughs> but also for men themselves. Like we get trapped in this idea that men need to be strong and men need to be brave and men don't cry and men eat meat and men like the list goes on of what me- what it means to be a man that is a really limiting and unhealthy and sometimes very mentally unhealthy definition. And so men should be interested in this conversation about what does it mean to be a man and then how do we teach boys and other men to to have healthier views of manhood, not only because it's better for everybody else, but because it'll be better for ourselves as well. We'll have just much healthier view of of who we are and, and what we're about. And so I think we just need to be a big part of this equation. Sadly, I don't know, I don't have data on me, but I the last time I had talked to the Canadian Women's Shelters of Canada, they disproportionately, like very few of their donors are men. So the vast majority of their like individual donors outside of organizations and government funding are women. And that seems, again, like highly problematic because it's a disproportionately male-created problem. Yep. And I see it, I've seen it quite a bit in, this is on the, the much lighter version of it, but I've seen it in the, all the discussions this month around Women's History Month and elevating women's voices and one of the really common things I hear is what advice would you give young women? I'm like, don't put it on young women. (laughs) If you want gender equity, we need to talk to men in power. And I don't, I, of course, I'm happy to give advice to young women and the people who actually can do something about it. It's not the people who are those coming into a system where they're very likely to be negatively impacted by inequity what really needs to happen what i who i'd like to give advice to is people who have the power and ability to make change today and that's overwhelmingly um men 100 percent. richard do you have anything you wanted to you know contribute before we start to move into the steps we can take <laughs> yeah no I, I appreciate the discretion I I work really hard every single day to advocate for the ethical economy through a broad range of uh, mediums from mentoring junior founders with uh, Impact Hub Network and organizing activities and workshops for free. And then I have my social enterprise startup and the systematic sociocultural global tendency to have a this gender gap but misogyny specifically and it's overwhelming from all the parts of the world at the same time i I also am i'm also a, a kind of a geek I love science and I love technology and I love to understand things on a biological level and, and understand what are the driving forces behind some of our decisions and and I think it's really hard to ignore the fact that there are some really organic tendencies that make us really yeah, very likely to invest energy and 
in certain aspects of our reality. And a lot, often that's misconstrued as in a negative way. Don't throw like a girl and be a man. And it's, society does a really terrible job of taking some of these natural elements and then feeding off of them in a very toxic way. And then we have this culture that is very hard to modify and adapt to our very modern world. And then there's other things that, yeah, even talking about donations to nonprofits, that's across the, the radar. I think it's Pew did a, 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 re, a research is like 73% or something like this of, of global nonprofit donors are actually women. So it's across a broad range and, and it just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really appreciate what Jason was saying also about being aware of your of the things in your proximity and making sure that you're giving space to to people and you're, you're having respect for you know, for people and for and just for your space and that's really important i think it's a really interesting topic we could spend a long time talking about it and it's it could easily get controversial so i'm going to try to keep it neutral because i'm really interested in so the practical steps but i think it's it's a, a conversation that's been happening for a long time and across a broad range of from academia to philosophy. And yeah, so it's, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have any specifics to say it's, it's something we're constantly being confronted with from business to how we're raising our kids and everything in between. Yeah, no, I know. I appreciate you, you, you joining in and, and sharing your thoughts and you're on here regularly having trying to create, make a better world through the, uh, through our investments and the business practices. And anyway, I appreciate you and, and coming in to join the, the discussion. So as we move into the building a more diverse and inclusive networks, I'm just going to sort of share a quick story that leads into that. So uh, a couple, it's probably three years ago now is my guess. I was running the impact investing team at World Vision and we were putting on a internal conference for high net worth individuals foundations around what is impact investing and then telling them a little bit about the impact investment opportunities that we had. And uh, the team, I made it clear to the team that we just generally speaking, when we spoke at conferences and when we put on events that we wanted to have diversity and inclusion, my, my team was all on board. We all shared those values. The organization does as well. I think, I think it's a little bit lumpy in terms of how it's being applied and how actively different people in different groups are doing it, but we made it a real big priority. Anyway, we, this conference, we started to put it on and we, it came together last minute and we didn't have as much time as we had wanted to. We had to change the date and we were less scrambling for, we wanted to have external speakers, not just all our own team presenting all of it. And, and as it turned out, we ended up having primarily men who were responding and saying that they could speak on this at this conference that we were holding. And we were quickly in a position where we just didn't have enough women speakers and we didn't have the time to keep looking. And so we did the best that we could, but it was still more men and it was still more, you know, white people than disproportionately white and disproportionately men. And so what that left me with was the problem is I don't have enough big enough network of, if I looked at the number of people we could have went to to ask that we knew of who are experts on this topic, it was disproportionately white men. And that's not because there aren't uh, people of color and women in particular who, who are experts in this subject. It's just I haven't networked with them and built that, put the time, effort, and energy into building that network. I think this is a really important discussion, and I'm happy to turn it over, Sonia, to you to introduce us to your framework. Yeah, and that's a, such a good example. It's one that I hear about a lot and I see a lot the conferences and financial services where we display who and give the microphone to who we think is knowledgeable and can inform everybody else's practices and so it's pretty telling that many maybe most of our conferences in the financial services space are overwhelmingly white and male on stage or white men on stage. In fact, one of the one of my Morningstar columns is about that specifically and includes data from 10 recent conferences. 
But that's not exactly what we're here to talk about. <laughs> Can I just say, uh, I love that, yes, go ahead. Morningstar, that you've started writing for Morningstar and they've seemed to be happy with addressing these thorny issues because that was my kind of alma mater is the wrong word, but I cut my teeth in the industry for 13 years working with Morningstar and I just think so highly of the organization and it just makes me happy that that, that connection's made and they're supportive of the giving you the kind of more of a platform for the work you're doing. They are and they're giving a platform to lot of really great folks. I'm happy to see it and happy to see that they are open to being called in to the work as well. For example, in the conferences article, we included, they specifically wanted me to include the Morningstar conference and they made an editor's note about it and about their numbers and what they're doing to improve. So it was really heartwarming, not quite the right word, but pretty close to that for a business experience. And I I'm grateful for that partnership. Love it. Yep. But that's a different topic or maybe a tangential topic. And I know that you wanted to talk more broadly about building a better business network and what individuals can do for that. And I like to give five steps. And so I'll just go through them briefly and then you can ask you if you're welcome to stop me and ask questions or people can pipe in. And the first one is stop. <laughs> Step one is stop. And I like to begin there because I think often when we think of action steps, it's okay, what can I do? Let me fix this right now. And sometimes when we jump too quickly to the solution, we haven't yet taken time to understand what we're trying, what we're trying to apply our solution to. We're so focused on the solution, we don't see the problem. <laughs> so I want people to stop and stop assuming that we talked about this a few minutes ago. Stop assuming that your lived experience is the same as other people's. And specifically if you're white, of course this goes for gender as well, but I think in terms of race, this applies even more. If you're white, you've likely seen your lived experience reflected in media and advertisements and business. And for example, if somebody tells you to picture a CEO you likely picture a white man, maybe you picture a white woman, but it's pretty unlikely. Most people will not picture, say, a black woman. And because that's our assumed default, because that's what we've seen reflected to us on TV and in magazines and in advertisements, and especially in the corporate C-suite and boardrooms inside of financial services, it can feel like the assumed default and it really shouldn't be because there's no default life experience. So to create a diverse and inclusive network, this is a major mindset that you have to notice and control. And so just being able to pause your own thinking when you start doing the sort of comparing, if somebody has told you a story of their experience and you compare it to yours, just believe them, <laughs> believe their experience instead of comparing it to yours and passing judgment on it. So that brings me to step two, and that is seeking out people who have had different life experiences than yours and listening to them, especially women of color. If they are readily sharing their experiences with bias and discrimination in the workplace, listen and listen to understand, not to respond, not to compare, and listen without discounting their experience because it's not the same as yours has been. And let me clarify, when I say listen, I'm not saying go find your woman coworker and say, hey, can you explain to me what, what sexism you've encountered? I would change that and say, if they are openly sharing it, stop and listen. If they are not, you can find other places to, to listen. You can read books, you can find people sharing their experiences on social media. You can Google some of the terms you hear. Don't expect women, and especially women of color, to educate you about what, it me what systemic racism means. You can Google it. You can Google words like patriarchy, misogyny, and get up to speed that way. And there's just tons of knowledge and books and podcasts, so many things that are free that you can listen to expand your understanding of what's happening either in your in financial services or in a different field or more broadly socially, if that's where you are. 
I'll pause there before we do the next three or the final three steps and see if you have any input questions. Yeah. So a couple, maybe a couple things. I love what you're saying about you do the work yourself. Like don't make somebody else do the work that you can do yourself. And if, and so sometimes I think what can happen sometimes is that people get men particularly get a little scared about what they can and can't do and what they should and shouldn't say. And that can make them want to clam up and not, not, it's not that they don't want to be allies, but sometimes they just don't know how to go about doing it. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves, and I've been in this position myself, and I'm guilty of it, I've been guilty of it in the past. At the moment when you're, it hits you or strikes you, or you feel compelled to learn a little bit more, you ask the person that you're in conversation with at, the, at that moment to talk about it and explain it, and you're curious in the moment because you know that you're not going to lift and do the do the work afterwards and go back and start to research and spend the time on it when quite frankly that is what we should be doing and it would be easier to of course to ask somebody to explain it to us and not have to do that but if we're serious about it i think that's one of the most telling indicators is just be honest with yourself if you claim to be an ally and you want to and and that you don't see race or that you don't see gender or whatever those kind of common excuses are ask yourself how much time have you spent trying to understand these issues? And if the answer is very little or zero, then, you know, obviously you're not that serious about it. The other thing I wanted to ask you if you have an opinion on, and if you don't, that's fine. But like one of the things I hear a lot, especially around gender specifically, and it came up a lot with, I think the Me Too and Time's Up movements and the Brett Kavanaugh hearings was like, oh, Men bristle at this idea that, well, now all it takes is for a man to be accused of, of doing something not right, and they don't even get a trial, and everyone just listens to the victim. And and I think that I love the... It's funny because Brett Kavanaugh did make it to the Supreme Court. Right? <laughs> it actually has a pretty strange interpretation of reality <laughs> when like men have been getting away with it for forever. But they really bristle at that. Yeah. And so, like, this idea of, listen, we can listen to women and their, any, anybody, like, listen to anybody who's been a victim or, or this had this perpetrated on them and pay attention and listen to them and not necessarily, that doesn't always equate to send that person to jail. I'm curious for if you've got thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think our uh, American justice system has the idea or presumption that people are innocent until proven guilty. And that's sort of like a cultural phenomenon that we've all adopted, even though sometimes that doesn't actually play out inside of our policing and justice system. But that's a conversation for another time. I'll put it in that. But I think that guilt, innocent until proven guilty does not mean we don't listen to accusations. And I will say that women who are talking about harassment, rape, assault, they're not doing it for fame or for fun. It is really hard. We know that if we come forward, we are likely not to be believed. We are possibly going to lose our jobs. We are going to lose family members and credibility and all kinds of things. This is not something we do for fun. And so I just want to disabuse that thought. Not that you have it, but I know some people do that women just go, I don't know, take down men for fun because we don't have anything else to do. That's not happening. And mo I, most women who speak out about abuse and assault are doing so from truthfully. And we tend not to believe them. And we, in our race to give, to presume innocence, of one party, what we're sometimes doing is erasing or erasing the experience of or taking the microphone away from uh, another person. And can we not assume that what they are, can, can we not presume innocence on their part also? Like, why cannot, why don't we give that same manner of consideration to women who are coming forward and consider? that they are not lying. Actually, that's really interesting. 
I hadn't thought about that particular, most of what you said I've, I've, I'm on board with and I'd heard before and I buy into and then the, the, the last framing of it. So if this person is lying about the sexual assault, they, if it is sexual assault, for instance, that's perjury. <laughs> and we're now just, you don't afford them the same, wait a minute, they're innocent until proven guilty. And I think it belies the, the patriarchy that men are steeped in. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that's great. You are heading into step three. Yes. Step three is actually similar to step one, which is the step one was stop. And step three is pause. And that's pause when you are listening, when you've found people to listen to, or you're reading a book or listening to a podcast, and you're starting to hear stories that are really from different perspectives than your own. And there might be stories of discrimination or harassment, or maybe you even see something that you've done reflected in those pages or in the podcast, whatever. It can be, it can be easy to get really defensive. And so I just ask people take a breath and pause your thoughts to review your reaction when you hear about an underrepresented person's experience with discrimination or bias. Don't immediately compare it to your own. Don't discount it if it doesn't match your experience. If you can do this with, it's impossible to do it with every thought, but if you, when you notice it, if you can acknowledge your bias, you can incrementally train your brain to do better next time. Yeah. Step four, and this is, this really, I suppose it works everywhere, but I, when I wrote this framework out, it was really thinking about financial services and the workplace. And it's to amplify the voices of your underrepresented coworkers. So in a meeting, if you are prioritized to speak, use the opportunity to pass the microphone. Sometimes we worry, we don't want to put people on the spot if they're not ready. But you can say in a meeting, say something like, oh, hey, Maria, Isaac, Alexandra, I noticed you've been really quiet. And I wonder if any of you had anything to add here. And just ask if they'd like to share. And then when people do share, people share their work publicly, amplify it on social media, share it with your colleagues by email, encourage your friends and colleagues to learn with you and, and amplify the, the voices of women and people of color. And this kind of fits in. If you see somebody interrupting or taking an idea that has already been expressed by a woman or a person of color, or especially for a woman of color, you have the opportunity, especially as a white man, to stop the meeting when that happens and say, just for example, hey, Joe, I know that Maria was talking and I want, can we just pause what you're saying? Because I really want to hear the end of what it is that she had to say. So when you hear the interrupting happen, have that sort of ready. It helps if you are, it helps if you've practiced that phrasing a little bit, have it ready to say and interrupt the meeting and redirect back to the person who was interrupted. And same, same goes if you hear Joe, uh, for example, saying an idea that Maria had said earlier in the meeting and say, uh, I love that idea. I know Maria shared a similar idea earlier today. Do you have anything? Did we miss anything there, Maria? Give her credit and acknowledge. So be mindful of what's happening in the room besides just you speaking and make sure that to include and acknowledge and amplify the voices of folks who are underrepresented in that room. That's awesome. I, I also want to say that's a, there's a genuine offer there. If anybody <laughs> here listening wants to you know jump into the conversation, please raise your hand. I, I also wanted to say, I, I think this is such a great, like, I love the practical examples you've given in a lot of your work around like exact phrasing you can use as well that can help you amplify other voices in a way that just feels natural and comfortable. And for everybody that might look and feel a little different, but you're giving like a clear phraseology that, that I think a lot of people could adopt if they wanted to. 
Yeah, and I will say it. This sound. This will sound silly, but it helps to practice those phrases. You can practice them in the mirror, practice them at your desk, practice saying them out loud. So when the time comes, you're you're ready, and they roll off your tongue. And one of the one of the things we talked about earlier was the incidents where where somebody was joking about putting roofies in my drink, and the other men just stood there and like embarrassed, chuckled. And if one of them could have said, hey, dude, stop, that's not funny. Or, hey, we don't do that here. Like having those phrases just in your pocket, ready to go can really be very helpful. I'll say, I'll give a plug for just being silly and practicing them alone by yourself so that you're ready when you need them. And that like specific example, I think is one of the, I don't know, call it best, but it's one of the most frequent, I think, opportunities men have to really speak up and advocate is those like misogynistic comments, those like joke, things that are passed off as jokes, but has an uncomfortable like amount of truth or like is being made to seem like a joke, but there's probably some truth in what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Men like just calling out other men. It happens so infrequently. And I think there's a variety of reasons why men, even well-intentioned men, don't call out other men. It's Social awkward. pressure. It's it, awkward. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's for sure. I've been guilty yeah. of not speaking up before, too. And I, it's something that I constantly, you know, like, I'm continually working on getting better and better at. And I, and I think I'm improving. And there's more cases where I do that. But I'm still not perfect. And, like, it's, it is a muscle that you have to exercise. It takes practice. And if you can practice practice without the like embarrassment consequence at home at least you'll have the words and you don't have to find the words you just have to get over the awkwardness and embarrassment i love it yeah so the last step step five is advocate for people from underrepresented groups whether or not they are in the room and maybe even more importantly when they're not in the room and including in a good way right saying hey i've seen that I've seen that Andrea has been doing really good work and it seems like her colleague was promoted and she wasn't, can we measure the, whatever the KPIs or business metrics are and see if she's eligible for promotions, something like that. But also in the sort of joking framework that we just talked about, if, uh, for example, if you're in a group of all white people and one of your colleagues makes a racist joke, be the person who says, we don't do that here. Or, hey, that, that kind of joke is not funny. That's racist. And it can be, like we just talked about, it can be really uncomfortable. And I ask that you do it anyway. And advocating can also look like what we talked about a couple minutes ago about speaking up in the room when a woman is interrupted or her ideas is repurposed. Let's not say stolen, but unintentionally repurposed. And also, in if you are in a homogenous meeting room advocate for adding more voices to that room and if you are unable to bring people of different backgrounds into the meetings at least be the voice for them in that room and because you've been listening to them you know what the know what some of the challenges are so you can speak to some of those more it's more important to actually bring those voices into the room so they can speak for themselves but if that's not possible, at least be their advocate in the, when you're in the, at the decision-making table. And so those are the five um, main techniques that I suggest. It will naturally expand your network by listening and amplifying people's voices. You will start to make more, you know, a much less homogenous network of business colleagues and it's, Aside from being good for business, it's quite enjoyable to hearing about different people's experiences and really getting to know a lot more people. It's been really wonderful and beneficial for me. I'd say I've been on this path for maybe seven or eight years, really intentionally, and it's been wonderful. Good for my business, but also just lovely and have a nice network all over the United States of wonderful people. Yeah, the, it, it seems to me incredibly ironic that the financial services industry in particular and in the investment industry in particular still lacks so much diverse, diversity because diversification is like the 
backbone <laughs> of the investment process. It's the, yeah. the saying is it's the only free lunch in investing. And it's just so well understood. And that analogy holds like really well to diversity of people and perspectives and lived experiences in terms of improving your business decisions and mitigating risk. And like, so it's just amazing that's not happening at a far more rapid pace because intellectually that argument is very strong. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to share all this. Sonia, you also like part of your work is to consult for firms and provide, help them make improvements. Is that right? Some. I don't have a lot of availability at the moment for that. And I am, I'll say, let me do a quick plug for something I'm working on. Yeah. I don't have enough. I don't, I, it's not developed enough to talk about yet publicly, but I am working on a new initiative to help lift up the voices of underrepresented subject matter experts in financial services. Women and people of color making sure that their voices are more heard, not just like this conversation today about what it's like to be a woman in financial services or how to build an inclusive network, but about their subject matter expertise. Mm. So I'm working on an initiative for that. And if anybody who's listening wants to get on the list to get more information, once we're ready to share it, you can text the word represent to 33 and in terms of consulting right now I'm doing mostly speaking engagements and writing and the occasional consulting on on this topic as well as some ESG consulting but for the most part my my plate is pretty full right now and so right. I may have to start a, a wait list for new clients Awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. I also saw your tweets. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw your tweets last week about teasing the new work that you're that you're working on. So I'm real excited to, I have to text to get on that list. And I'm really excited to hear about it when you're finally ready to share. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. And hopefully it'll be really big and exciting. That sounds amazing. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you've been enjoying it, I would really appreciate if you go to Apple iTunes and leave a rating or a review. And if you're sitting back listening passively, why not get involved in the conversation? It's so much more interesting. Visit us at www.kindwealth.club to learn more. And if you know of anybody else who'd be interested, please send them our way. Have them visit the website. We'd love to have more people join.